I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In Bay City, he said slowly, the name's like a song, a song in a dirty bathtub. What were you doing down there? I didn't go down there. These cops took me over the line. They put him into a hotel somewhere out of the city and actually were feeding him intravenously because all he was doing was taking alcohol to finish this script. It was a horrendous chore. Apparently, he felt that American English in the 1930s was at a similarly exciting point of its development as English had been for Shakespeare in the 16th century. This was a protean language that was still being invented and changed and experimented with on the streets. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning, mid-October with the sun not shining and a look of hard, wet rain in the clearness of the foothills. I was wearing my powder blue suit with dark blue shirt, tie and display handkerchief. Black brogues, black wool socks with dark blue clocks on them. I was neat, clean, shaved and sober and I didn't care who knew it. I was everything the well-dressed private detective ought to be. I was calling on four million dollars. Those are the opening lines of The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler, the first words spoken by his hard-boiled private eye, his taller, younger, alter ego, Philip Marlowe. Before Chandler settled in Southern California, he had lived in pre-Mafia Chicago, pre-Telephone Nebraska, Quaker Island and Victorian London. In his 50s, however, he became a world-famous novelist, the highest-paid screenwriter in the history of Hollywood, and he became indelibly associated with the city of Los Angeles. In the late 1940s, W.H. Auden said that Chandler's books should be read and judged not as escape literature, but as works of art. On the centenary of his birth in 1988, Pico Iyer wrote in Time magazine that T.S. Eliot merely articulated the deepest spiritual and emotional issues of the times. Chandler put them on the sidewalk. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and today I'm putting on my hat, my coat and my gun and stepping out among the blondes and bruisers on the noir streets of Los Angeles, where the heat waves 
dance above the sidewalk. And I'm delighted to be sitting in the backyard of our guest for today's episode. I'm sitting with the author, Dick Lochter. Dick, thank you so much for welcoming us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Dick Lochter is an acclaimed novelist, critic, and screenwriter. His first novel, Sleeping Dog, which was published in 1985, was nominated for the prestigious Edgar, Seamus, and Anthony Awards, and it won the Nero Wolfe Award. It was selected by the Independent Mystery Booksellers of America as one of the hundred most popular mystery novels of the 20th century. He wrote a long-running column for the Los Angeles Times reviewing crime fiction, and he has been president of both the American Crime Writers League and the Private Eye Writers of America. And one of his favourite authors is Raymond Chandler. Dick, I can't think of a better person to talk about Chandler with well, me today. I, that's good to know. I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased that you think so. Dick, how did you first come across Raymond Chandler? Can you remember? Oh, yes, I remember the exact day. I was about uh, 14 years old, probably precocious. I was visiting a friend of mine uh, in New Orleans. I grew up in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And his brother had gone into the Army and uh, was the editor of Stars and Stripes, the Army newspaper. But in his room, which, of course, we pilfered completely, there was a copy of, a, I guess it was a, a, a pocketbook mm -hmm. of The Big Sleep. And it had that wonderful cover, which I still think is the best Raymond Chandler cover I've ever seen, where Philip Marlowe looks a little like Gregory Peck, and he's in the room with Carmen Sternwood sitting on a dais, and she's partially dressed as opposed to the book, of course. But I, I, that cover just drew me, and you know, when you're 14 years old and you see something like that. So I was not allowed to take the book out of the, out of the house, so I'd have to go back there every day, which I did for like five or six days until I finished the book. Wow. <laughs> That's fabulous. <laughs> Well, we're sitting at your home in Santa Monica in Los Angeles, which in Chandler's books is renamed Bay City. Yes. And this is one of the locations that Chandler likes to use in his novels. We mentioned just now that um, Chandler didn't write his first book until he was 50. So let's just recap sort of how he got to that point. He was born in Chicago in 1888 um, and then had his childhood in really very rural Nebraska, right? Mm -hmm. And then his parents separated and his Anglo-Irish mother took him home to Ireland to her family. And then they moved to London, where he went to school at Dulwich College. And then at the age of 25, he, he traveled back to the States and found his way to Los Angeles. And once when somebody asked him why Philip Marlowe was based in Los Angeles. He said, I, I don't have an answer to that, except that eventually most people do come here. <laughs> <laughs> so he, like Marlowe, arrived in Los Angeles, and, and initially he had a completely different career, didn't he? What did he do when he first came to the city? Well, first he had many little jobs, but eventually he went to work for Dabney Oil, and that was where he maintained his best occupation before becoming a writer. And uh, there he rose in the ranks, but then because he was a boozer, his alcoholism slowed him down and right. eventually it got him fired. He seems to have had a knack for joining industries at exactly the right moment. And he joined the Dabney's Oil Company just as the oil boom was yes. turning L.A. into yes. a different city, right? Yes. But he had strung tennis rackets and gone fruit oh, picking. Oh, and he, yeah, fruit picking was something I would love to have seen Raymond Chandler fruit pick <laughs> with his gloves on. Right. 
So you're right. He he became, I think, a vice president at Dabney Oil Mm -hmm. before his alcoholism and his affairs led to him being fired. And then he went through a complete sort of change, didn't he? He he moved with his older wife, Sissy. He came and rented an apartment in Santa Monica, just off Pico Boulevard, where we're sitting right now. Right. And he began writing. He just set out to become a crime writer. That was in 1932. So, Dick, for, for listeners who don't know L.A., could you describe you know, what is Santa Monica like and, and what would it have been like in the 1930s? Do you well, think? it was a, a peaceful little seacoast community. Venice was this sort of rebellious section of this part of California, but Santa Monica bumped up right against Venice so that you'd have like the mom and dad part of it was Santa Monica, quiet, except the police force was not its best. And I think that's what appealed to Chandler about it, was that it it was a sort of peaceful-looking community with a very uh, difficult police force. His biographer, Tom Heine, describes Santa Monica at the time as uh, low-to-middle-income conservatism, white, reactionary, safe, and gossipy. And he says that Chandler was convinced the town was only as quiet as it was because the entire police force was in the pocket of mobsters. Of course, that about sums it up. (laughs) And what's it like today? Has it changed? Oh, yeah, it's changed quite a bit. Policing in Southern California has changed quite a bit, although you probably would not notice it from the recent headlines. But we're a little more law and ordery than we were back in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. Well, so he kind of set out in the early 1930s to write short stories for pulp magazines, especially Black Mask, which was this magazine which started to specialize in detective fiction. There was a legendary editor there, wasn't there, called Joseph Shaw? Cap Shaw. Cap Shaw. Cap Shaw was the person who found Dashiell Hammett and really promoted Dashiell Hammett, loved, loved the Hammett stuff. And I think Hammett was probably the writer who influenced Chandler more than any other uh, mystery writer. Mm-hmm. And he was very happy mm-hmm. to wind up in a place that had fostered Dashiell Hammett. There's a line from uh, one of Shaw's editorials in Black Mask where he says that one of the reasons he's so excited about detective fiction is that as he sees it, it's only just commenced to be developed. All the other fields have been worked and overworked, but detective fiction has barely been scratched. It, maybe it felt like this was new territory that they were Well, I think he's, he's essentially talking about hard-boiled detective fiction uh-huh. because, of course, they had a long tradition of British... Uh, and even, I think, in this country, there were, like, the Ellery Queens and mm. the uh, Philo Vances that were sort of similar to the Sherlock Holmes image into the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and Dashiell Hammett, of course, had been an ex-Pinkerton detective himself and and had huge success with his series of continental op stories and his novels like The Maltese Falcon and The Thin Man and so on. And it seems like Chandler really kind of applied himself to this new calling. He used to type on these narrow sheets of yellow paper, which he'd put landscape in his typewriter. So Mm -hmm. very, very small bits of paper. And I think that's such a clever system because it meant that he felt like he had to get something great onto every piece of paper. Mm -hmm. That's why the text feels like it's just zinging with these fantastic one-liners and characters. There was a thing that he he said once about his writing style or 
how, what motivated him, is that he would be in a room with a typewriter and nothing else. Now, he didn't have to write, but he couldn't do anything else. <laughs> so if you're in that situation and you can't do anything but write, you wound up writing. You do it. <laughs> and he was really kind of meticulous about keeping notebooks of possible titles, possible names, um, one-liners that occurred to him. It seems like he had an amazing eye for observation that he'd remember what people were wearing weeks later and, and sort of spot an interesting-looking character on the street and, and store them up for use later. But it was after having written a number of these stories, which had gained some success in that um, world, in the mm -hmm. world of Black Mask, that in the summer of 1938, here in Santa Monica, Chandler took some of his existing stories and turned them into his first novel, The Big Sleep. And that was the first appearance of his detective hero, Philip Marlowe. Yeah. Before that, I guess he, his characters were called John Dalmas, and uh, I think there was a, maybe a, a Carmichael. Mm -hmm. There were several names that he gave his detectives, but he focused on the Philip Marlowe, and I think eventually went back and changed those earlier short stories so that Marlowe appeared in all of them. Oh, that's interesting. Dick, how would you introduce Philip Marlowe to readers who haven't read Chandler before? Oh, well, you know, he is the white knight of the detective field. There was a, a, a new Philip Marlowe novel that was published this month called The Second Murderer. Mm. It was written by an Irish mystery writer and her description of Marlowe was a little different and it sort of threw me off throughout the whole book in that she had him being you'd almost say not thuggish but he was very lower class mm. uh, which I never thought he was I thought from that moment in the big sleep when he's talking about how well dressed he is right. going calling on five million dollars He's a detective who has a lot of heart and certainly has a great deal of uh, honesty. Mm -hmm. Chandler once said, just a month before his own death, that he always saw Marlowe in a lonely street, in lonely rooms, puzzled but never quite defeated. It's a nice line. And Beautiful. it feels like uh, he's this kind of outsider character, isn't he? He's always on the outside looking in. You know, occasionally when he's tempted to settle down or make a friend, he's sort of he avoids it certainly uh, as, as he does in uh, farewell my lovely the, absolutely his approach to Anne reardon the one woman he meets who i think is honorable uh-huh and she obviously is interested in him and i think he's interested in her but he keeps it at an arm's distance mm, something in him needs to be alone the biographer tom heine describes marlowe as a hard-drinking hero who combined everything that Raymond Chandler was, wished he was, and feared he might be. I think in every Marlowe novel, there's at least one blackout scene which usually involves alcohol and always involves amnesia. He, you know, Chandler drank to such an extent that he'd black out for hours at a time. Yes, that's most evident, I think, in Chandler's greatest book, in my opinion, uh, The Long Goodbye, mm -hmm. where the writer, Roger Wade is an alcoholic and talks about his alcoholism and how it affects his life and the monster under the bed and all of that mm -hmm. uh, business, which you just know Chandler is talking about 
how yeah. it felt for him. Yeah, that character, Roger Wade, has that chilling line where he says, alcohol is like love. The first kiss is magic. The second is intimate. The third is routine. After that, you take the girl's clothes off. Yeah, it's perfect. It's just, yeah, yeah it's chilling. Um, and then in an, even in one of the earlier stories, you know, when actually, I think during the 30s, Chandler was pretty much teetotal. He has a line for a hotel detective called Steve Grace where he says, I'm an occasional drinker, the kind of guy who goes out for a beer and wakes up in Singapore with a full beard. <laughs> <laughs> and again, you feel like there's, there's yeah. elements of Chandler in there. Yeah. You know, I think when you read a Chandler novel, the thing which really just springs off the page is this distinctive style of writing he yeah. has, which is just so brilliant and so unique. How, you know, how would you describe that, Dick? What is, what's the writing style like? Well, uh, first off, I think that the, the one thing that Chandler had that I, I never hear people talk about, but he had this incredible vocabulary. He had slang words. He had arcane words. He had quotes from from Spencer. You know, Marlowe is, is, is a sort of interesting character in that he's more than a human. He has the knowledge that a, a man who's an intellectual, but he's not an intellectual. And I think that when Chandler was writing with this incredible vocabulary, you can come up with words and phrases that are so unique and so and so right on funny, you know, so that it's, it's like whenever you have that much control of, of a language, you can just twist it and turn it. Mm. And I think that's what he does. When I, when I read his phraseology, the way his sentences flow, mm. it's because he has this tremendous vocabulary. He and a uh, comedy writer named S.J. Perelman, mm. And they who, corresponded, didn't they? Who yeah. I think were, mm. they, they were friends. Mm. They both had this same kind of humor and same kind of vocabulary. I mean, S.J. Perelman would talk about a woman with a dynamic balcon, you know, <laughs> which is an unusual way of putting it, but I can almost hear Philip Marlowe making a joke out right. of that, you know. And Perelman, of course, wrote for Groucho Marx, and, you know, it's that oh, yeah. level of uh, and humor. He, and, and he did a parody of, mm. of Chandler called Farewell, My Lovely Appetizer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that. Yeah, there was a there was a there was a piece in New York about uh, some f- fish that were taken from a famous uh, delicatessen that that didn't work out, and so he constructed this whole Philip Marlowe tale about it, and very very funny. Oh, I must look that up. It's so true about his language, isn't it? Because you know, Chandler himself was a bit of an outsider, having grown up in. First for States and then Ireland, then the UK. You, you yep. know, he'd been to an independent school in the UK, seen how people spoke there, then came back to the States. And he apparently he felt that American English in the 1930s was, you know, at a similarly sort of exciting point of its development as English had been for Shakespeare in, mm-hmm. in you know, in the 16th century. But this was a protean language that was still being invented and changed and experimented with on the on the streets and I feel that definitely comes across in the fluidity and, and, and vibrancy of his writing. Well I mean the idea of calling death the big sleep right. which I think he created and, and was it Eugene O'Neill used it later in a play <laughs> the idea of death being the big sleep I mean how poetic yeah. is that and, yeah. and at the same time how slangy. Right, yes. Wonderful. yes there is real poetry in there and how would you describe Chandler's humor in the novels? Well, you know, it, it ranges from wordplay 
to an actual gag. You know, in in uh, the Long Goodbye, Marlowe comes upon this detective who has just been beaten to a pulp. He's lying in a gutter and his face is smashed and his I think his his leg is broken. And Marlowe says, well, what happened? And he says, this guy hit me. And he says, well, the guy thinks he's tough. <laughs> and and Marlowe says, you mean he's not sure? <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. And there's a real sort of, there's a deadpan quality to it, isn't yes, there? And he has, yes, yes. And I think the thing that, you know, is perhaps most distinctive and so easy to quote as well are his brilliant similes it feels like on almost every page of a Chandler novel there's just there's a line you want to read out to whoever's in the room um I'm thinking you know in the big sleep one of the very first pages it has uh, General Sternwood the general spoke again slowly using his strength as carefully as an out-of-work showgirl uses her last good pair of stockings yeah that's 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 so lovely I mean it 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 shows uh, Chandler's knowledge of that of, Mm. of the showgirl as well as the elderly man trying to trying yeah. to move. Yeah, it's brilliant. And we quoted Pico Iyer just a little while ago, and in one of his celebrations of Chandler, he felt that the simile, he, he described it as the perfect device for describing a world in which everything is like something else and nothing is itself. Hmm. And so in a way, this, this device is perfect for the settings of Marlowe's novels because everyone is not quite what they seem. Every yes. setting has a secret to be uncovered. And in fact, that makes me think of another question I wanted to ask you, Dick, which is why do you think Los Angeles as a city is such a perfect location for Marlowe? Why is it a good backdrop for this character? Well, at that particular time in this country, it was the last step before the ocean. (laughs) And so it's where people came to get a whole new life, to change their life, to... Uh, throw off their past and begin a whole new life again. And I think that was why it became so interesting for Chandler to be here at that time, that he he was finding people who were starting new careers, starting new lives. Uh, Marlowe himself would bump into people who were newcomers to Mm. the area, and they were here to find something that they couldn't find back home. Uh huh, and also it was a city that was changing a lot, wasn't it? And it, with the money that was coming in from the oil industry, there was suddenly um, this rise in lawlessness in the 1930s. There were guns everywhere, and when once the prohibition laws were repealed, then suddenly the rackets which had been running alcohol moved into drugs, gambling, prostitution, and so this sort of underworld emerged oh, yeah. in LA, which which Marlowe explores in the novel. Of course, and I mean the big things were were oil and the movies. Mm. That was mm. that was what Southern California was. It was oil and the movies. And the oil made billionaires, as did the movies, mm. but the movies carried with them a sort of glamour that the oil did not. Mm-hmm. And there's that in the Marlowe books, too, this sort of phony glamour, mm. especially in a, a book like uh, The Little Sister. Well, I was going to say there's that wonderful line he has in The Little Sister where Marlowe says, I smelled Los Angeles before I got to it. Mm-hmm. It smelled stale and old, like a living room that had been closed too long. But the coloured lights fooled you. The lights were wonderful. Yeah, and yeah. He captures it there, doesn't he? And it, I think there's a wonderful irony in that phrase, film noir and the noir 
genre that Chandler was writing into. You know, he said in the introduction to one of his story anthologies that the streets of L.A. were dark with something more than night. Yes. And the irony that this noir, dark city is actually so brilliantly lit by sunshine every day of the year. There's that kind of, you know, the darkness on these brightly lit streets is a wonderful juxtaposition, isn't it? Now, your wonderful first novel, Sleeping Dog, which I absolutely loved, and I'm really thrilled to see that it's, it's just been published in the new Penguin Crime Classics series. I'm so quite happy about that. I'm quite <laughs> happy about that. But green well, cover. I love those green covers. They're really beautiful, and, I, and yeah, it's a fantastic, gripping, but also witty tribute to classic hard-boiled fiction, like, like Chandler was writing. If you don't mind me talking about it for a moment, half the chapters are narrated by a kind of Marlowe-like private eye. He's called Leo Bloodworth, um, with three ex-wives, an office in downtown LA like uh, Marlowe. At one point, his voice on the phone is described as a bad Humphrey Bogart imitation. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a sort of, you know, the kind of character we'd expect to be narrating a hard-boiled crime novel. But then the other half of the book is narrated by this just fabulous character, a 14-year-old roller-skating girl called Serendipity Dalquist. Mm -hmm. I think you've got Chandler's knack for names, Dick. And she lives in Bay Heights, which I imagine is a version of Santa Monica, sort of well, Bay it, City it, it's, reference. It, it's maybe the Palisades. Okay, okay, a little but uh, But, yeah, it's, it's an overhanging part of Santa Monica uh -huh. that... I guess there are certain areas of Santa Monica right off the ocean that uh, look down on the ocean, and that's more upper class than right. than the rest of Santa Monica. Yes, right. And she lives with her grandmother, who's an aging actress. And yes. It's, it's, it's a wonderful book and full of references to Ross MacDonald, Leslie Charteris, and Chandler, of course. Now, today, Dick, we're going to be discussing the book that Chandler wrote after The Big Sleep, his second novel, called Farewell, My Lovely, which he published in 1940. And, and that novel is set mostly in Bay City, in, in Santa Monica, where yes. we are today. Yes. One thing I love about, you know, Chandler was so meticulous in his preparations for characters, for specific vocabulary of lines. But one thing he wasn't meticulous about was uh, mapping out the plot before he started. And yeah. I think one of his theories was that uh, if he didn't know what was going to happen next, then the, his readers wouldn't either. And as... With all his novels, Farewell, My Lovely is a complex and, and sort of uh, brilliantly convoluted plot, but it has some wonderful characters in it. Mm -hmm. On the very first page, we meet you know, possibly one of the most memorable villains from all of Chandler's novels, Moose Malloy. Uh, just describe Moose for us, Dick. Well, Moose is a giant <laughs> who uh, just can grab Marlowe by the shoulder and drag him along like a, like a, a, a baby doll. <laughs> right. He, I think Chandler said that he was as out of place as a, what was it? As a, as a tarantula, a tarantula on a slice on of, a slice of yes. Which is just perfect. I mean, you can see what that would be like. It, absolutely. And he's standing on the corner of what is basically a, a, a black neighborhood mm -hmm. looking for this woman mm. that he left behind when he was imprisoned six or I seven eight years, years ago. Eight years yes. ago. Looking and, for Velma. And he wants Velma. Mm -hmm. And he's not going to stop until he finds mm -hmm. Velma. So that's, that sets up one of the plot lines of the book. And then another brilliant character who sets up another plot line is a character called Helen Grail, who's had a jade necklace stolen. Yes. And she, when, when Marlowe just sees a photograph of 
Mrs. Grail. He says, it was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. Yeah, I love those kind of quotes. (laughs) (laughs) And she's a fantastic character as well. But we mentioned briefly just now another character, fascinating character, Anne Reardon. Yes. Who lives on 25th Street in Santa Monica, as do you. Yes, it could be this house. Right. (laughs) And there's, there's moments where Marlowe comes back to see Anne they're discussing the case. She's a cop's daughter, mm-hmm. and she's kind of got involved. And there's moments where he comes to a house very like your one, and and, and looks inside and says, "This is a, you know, this could be a homely house. This looks like the kind of house where you could rest your head." And you, there's a tantalising glimpse of Marlowe finding domestic happiness, but not, not to, to be. be, not to be. And I wondered if there was a slight memory of Anne Reardon in your character, Celie McDermott, who's in Sleeping Dog. Do you think that might be? It's possible. I, I really wasn't thinking of her when I did that. Mm, but, mm. but I wanted someone who was a good bad girl or a bad mm-hmm. good girl, whatever, right. whichever way you wanted and it. And someone who's a match for the S- Someone detective. who was a match for the detective, but who was also there under false pretenses that mm-hmm. uh, the detective wouldn't really realize. It's it's funny. I mean, a lot of people interpret books a different way. There is a British critic whose name I will never remember, but he suggested that Serendipity Dahlquist was the beginning of the feminist movement into crime fiction. And I, I said, well, you know, I'll take that. <laughs> yes. But, but I, that really wasn't my intent when I created her. But what a flattering interpretation. Oh, That's yeah, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. wonderful. That's fantastic. Well, Dick, it's been great introducing Chandler and Farewell, my lovely, here in your backyard. But let's hop in the car now and head down into Santa Monica to look at some of the locations that Chandler describes. Absolutely. It was a cheap-looking building for so prosperous a town. It looked more like something out of the Bible Belt. Bums sat unmolested in a long row on the retaining wall that kept the front lawn, now mostly Bermuda grass from falling into the street. The building was of three stories and had an old belfry at the top, and the bell still hanging in the belfry. They had probably rung it for the volunteer fire brigade back in the good old Chaw and Spit days. Well, we've just stepped out of the car and we've driven down towards the ocean. Now we're down in central Santa Monica now, sitting in front of Santa Monica City Hall, which is a big, low Art Deco building built in 1939. Now, the the City Hall in Bay City that Chandler describes is the previous building that uh, was built in 1902, which was a mission revival style building with a belfry. But it was on this very spot and... And Chandler would have known this building too. This building was brand new in 1939, just as he was publishing The Big Sleep and starting to write Farewell, My Lovely. And actually, this building, Dick, uh, features in Sleeping Dog, doesn't it? There's a moment where... Yes, At the beginning, when Serendipity comes to the police department here, right? Right. She goes in to find someone who will help her locate her missing dog <laughs> called Groucho indeed what happens is that uh, that person sends her to Leo Bloodworth and the book begins she has a, she's got a wonderful way with words Serendipity Dalquist and you have her say it's the white art deco city hall building on Main Street but you've probably seen 
on all those TV detective shows that I loathe so completely. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that's what we're looking at now. And this spot is an important location in Farewell My Lovely as well. Yes. There's a kind of escalating sequence of violent encounters that Marlowe has, first with a phony psychic called Amtor, then he gets picked up by a couple of Bay City cops and taken to a really terrifying private hospital run by someone called Dr. Sonderberg, which he has to break out of. And when he finally escapes, he comes to confront the chief of police here at City Hall, who's called John Wax. And on the way to his room, there's about five different signs saying, John Wax, chief of police. It's a very funny uh, sequence. And Dick, I wonder, would you read out Chandler's description of John Wax? It's, It's one of his great character descriptions. He was a hammered-down heavyweight with short pink hair and a pink scalp glistening through it. He had small, hungry, heavy-lidded eyes, as restless as fleas. Trouble, he said, still softly, is something our little city doesn't know much about, Mr. Marlowe. Our city is small, but very, very clean. <laughs> He's such a sinister character, and uh, yeah. you, you know that under that there's layers of corruption under this... Uh, this police chief. So it's interesting that lots of the law enforcers in these black mask stories are private investigators. They're outside the city police forces. And I guess that's because at the time there was a real concern about corruption in, in the police. And I think so. I think that's that's part of it. But also there was a sort of feeling of individualism that mm. uh, in New York City, for example, it's all police. In the West Coast where it's the freedom, it's the the openness, the newness, it's one guy taking on everything himself rather than relying on a legal badge in his pocket. Sure. And how does Chandler present the law? How does he present the police in his novels? Well, half of the cops seem to be uh, sadistic brutes who punch him around, and then the other half are just sort of worn-down, honorable cops who just don't know what else to do with their situation. They're in a hopeless situation. Yeah, there's a character in in Farewell My Lovely called Hemingway who says at one point uh, that a guy can't stay honest if he wants to. That's what's the matter with this country. He gets chiseled out of his pants if he does. You've got to play the game dirty or you don't eat. That's it, yes. And, uh, yeah, you get a real sense that they don't have much of a choice. But there does seem to be a difference between the Los Angeles City Hall and its policemen and the Bay City police who seem to be smarter, smugger, more corrupt than their Los Angeles. Yeah, I think their corruption is stronger in Bay City. It it was total corruption that the cops were all on somebody's payroll. Gosh. There's also that funny returning image in Farewell My Lovely when he's in the Los Angeles Police Department in the City Hall over there where he's got a bit more respect for the policeman and there's, um, do you remember, there's that little pink bug that he sees crawling up the the table leg in the police office and this pink bug, he he becomes sort of oddly affectionate towards it and sees it, I guess, as a kind of metaphor for the, like, struggling you know, trying to do the right thing, Mm. falling to the bottom and carry on climbing up and almost the very last lines of the novel are wondering what happened to his little pink bug whether it climbed up to the top of City Hall again Yeah, yeah We've just moved slightly closer to City Hall and we're sitting in front of a very pretty uh, 
fountain installation that's running down terrace steps in front of the building. And Dick, I thought we could just talk a little about you know, what happened next in Chandler's career. Because after Farewell, My Lovely, he, he wrote a couple more Marlowe novels, The High Window in 1942 and The Lady and the Lake in 1943. And then in May 1943, he received this extraordinary phone call from Paramount Studios in Hollywood, inviting him to come and adapt the James Cain novel Double Indemnity with its director, Billy Wilder. And, and Dick, what happened when Chandler went to Hollywood? Well, the first thing that happened is that he and Billy Wilder didn't really get along that <laughs> right. well together. Uh, Chandler was, would complain about the fact that Mr. Wilder walks around with a walking uh, stick that he keeps beating against his leg, which upset him. And he didn't like Mr. Wilder making phone calls to his girlfriends while they were trying to write the screenplay. But Wilder, on the other hand, I don't think he liked Chandler. In fact, he's, he mentioned at, a, at an affair that I was at that he was not a big fan of Chandler's, but he thought he was a genius. I think he once said he was one of the greatest creative minds he'd ever encountered. Yes. Yeah. So this script for Double Indemnity, the film came out in 1944, and it was a sensation, wasn't it? Box office and critical. It was indeed, and, and it proved something that Chandler was trying to prove, that Wilder thought that they could just use the dialogue from the book. And Chandler said, no, you can't use the dialogue from the book because it's too stilted. It would sound awful when you tried to read uh -huh. it. And so they actually spent a, a bit of time doing the actual dialogue from the book. And Wilder said, yes, you're right. You know, we have to rewrite. So they had to rewrite all of the dialogue. And of course, they were working at a time when the production code this, this kind of, kind of self-appointed board of Catholic censors was making it incredibly hard to make films like an adaptation of a James K novel or a, or a Raymond Chandler novel. Very and much, so they yeah. were having to, anything that was considered at all indecent, they had to hint at or, or kind of circle around. But they did that in such a brilliant, you know, skillful way in Double Indemnity that it, it suddenly opened up the possibility for these hard-boiled films to be made in Hollywood. Yes, I think so. Uh, it certainly led the way for a lot of a lot of noir films being made right after that. Uh-huh. Especially because it was so successful. That was the main right. reason that it, right. that uh, there were so many other films like it right afterwards. It's it's interesting by the way. Raymond Chandler is in the movie. Is he? Yeah, he, there's a, there's one sequence where Fred McMurray is talking to a guy on a bench and that's Raymond Chandler. Fantastic. I never knew that. That's brilliant. And it seems like, you know, the, the success of the film made Chandler a success as well. And he got this legendary Hollywood agent called H.N. Swanson or Swanee, Swanee. Uh, who had represented Fitzgerald and Faulkner and, and would later represent Elmore Leonard. And, you know, I think there was talk at one point of him adapting The Great Gatsby for Hollywood. Sadly, so, that never yes. happened. Yes. But then there's a you know, famous Hollywood legend about the film that Chandler went on to write his first original screenplay for The Blue Dahlia, mm -hmm. which came out in 1946. And this was a rush job, right, because the, the leading actor, Alan Ladd, had been called up to for, fight for in the war. Duty, yes. Yeah. And so they had to film it quickly before he was shipped out. Yes. And they called in Chandler to do it, and he, he stipulated all these riders in his contract. And, 
and essentially told the studio that he'd have to take up drinking again in order to complete this script. That's true. That's true. And they actually put him into a hotel somewhere out of the city and actually were feeding him intravenously because all he was doing was taking alcohol to finish this script. It was a horrendous chore, but it's a pretty interesting movie. Yeah, how do you think it ranks alongside his novels, say? Oh, it's not in the mm. same ca- class as his mm. novels, but it's, it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. I think they made him change the, the villain in it because the original villain was a serviceman and they did not want a serviceman to be considered a killer. Interesting. So he had to redo the ending of it. Well, because of this you know, pretty traumatic experience, Chandler, after only a few years, but after a very influential few years, he decided to leave Hollywood in 1946. And the irony is that the year that he, he left the film business, it was the same year that The Big Sleep, the Warner Brothers movie, came out, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, one of the greatest movies ever made and a wonderful adaptation of his first novel, adapted by William Faulkner and Lee Brackett. That is an extraordinary film, isn't it? It's, yeah. a, it's an amazing film, and it, uh, even more amazing because of the various permutations it went through. Uh, the original script was very close to Chandler's novel, but the censorship made that an impossibility, so they re- redid much of it. Mm-hmm. Then they had a script, and it was perfectly fine, except that Lauren Bacall did not have enough to do in it. <laughs> and the Warner Brothers was concerned because they had a lot invested in her, and her last film, that was a flop. And as a result, they needed a movie with her and Bogart being very much like they were in the Hemingway movie that they made. So they redid a lot of the scenes. They took out a scene that sort of explained the film that took place in the office of the district attorney. They just removed that entirely (laughs) and put more scenes in of, of Bogart and Bacall together. Right. And as a result, everybody was happy. Bacall's career flourished. The movie was a tremendous success. Well, and, and one of the reasons for that great chemistry is they got together on that movie, didn't they? And they yes. married and yes. they fell in love while making it. And that sort of confusing plotline, rather like the novels, that's almost a part of the attraction of it, isn't it? I know um, when the Coen brothers made The Big Lebowski, one of the models they had was the confusing nature of a Chandler adaptation. Sure. Just, sure. You know, what, who is his character? How does it work? And I suppose that what The Big Sleep did was introduce Chandler and Philip Marlowe especially to an international audience and yes. suddenly he became this celebrated international author. Very much so and he was also, I think at the time, the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. Which is incredible, isn't it? That's amazing. Now there have been several different adaptations of Chandler's novels. There have been three adaptations of Farewell My Lovely, the novel we're focusing on today. Mm-hmm. The first couple were really, you know, hobbled by the production code and, and the censorship. The first came out in 1942 and was called The Falcon Takes Over with George Sanders as, as the private detective, not called Philip Marlowe, he was called Gay Lawrence, they yes, changed it. Yes. And then soon after that, there was another one in 1944. This was the first screen appearance of Philip Marlowe, played by Dick Powell. 
And uh, again, they changed the title. Apparently, they did audience testing, and um, apparently, people said that "Farewell, My Lovely" sounded like a musical, so they decided well, to change well, it. Well, the big problem was that Dick Powell was a musical performer up right. until that point, uh-huh. and they, uh, they, they. There's an interesting thing about the title of "Farewell, My Lovely." It's not a real Raymond Chandler title. Oh yeah. Or "Murder, My Sweet," "Farewell, My Lovely." None of the, the Chandler titles are all the something, the uh-huh. big sleep the high window the uh lady in the lake but that one is different it's farewell my lovely i never understood why he changed his his pattern at that point that's interesting yeah you're right and so yes the 1944 film came out as murder my sweet but then there was a third adaptation in 1975 with charlotte rampling and robert mitchum as marlowe the only actor who's played marlowe more than once on the big screen and I know he's one of your favorite actors to portray the role. Yeah, I think I, there was a, a Los Angeles magazine cover with Mitchum on the cover, and under it was a title saying, has uh, Robert Mitchum been the real Philip Marlowe all along? <laughs> and that was my opinion, yes. That's great. There's a writer called Edward Thorpe who wrote a, a book called Chandler Town about all the different locations in that Chandler used in Los Angeles, and he says, in his view, Mitchum is arguably the perfect casting for Marlowe. His height, his naturally weary, cynical expression, his tough guy presence, his laconic delivery, making the exact physical realisation of the character from the printed page. I guess the only issue is, in that 1975 film, he's quite a lot too old, to, you know, compared to the Yeah, he's a little, a little old, and there was also a little too much sentimentality in that mm. film that uh, isn't in the book. Uh-huh. And just while we're talking about film adaptations, it's also worth noting that the year before, 1974, was the year that Roman Polanski made Chinatown, which is not a Chandler adaptation, but it's set in 1930s LA. The Jack Nicholson character is a Marlowe-type private eye. And uh, Robert Town, who, who won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for that film, he said that Chandler was more of an inspiration than anyone else when he was writing that. Oh, movie. absolutely, I would imagine. It, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's very much a Chandler-like film. Well, let's, we've met John Wax and we've talked about the police department. Let's head on into Santa Monica, into Bay City, and discuss some of the other memorable scenes from this novel. Do we dare? <laughs> <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I needed a drink. I needed a lot of life insurance. I needed a vacation. I needed a home in the country. What I had was a coat, a hat, and a gun. I put them on and went out of the room. Well, we've walked down to the ocean now, and we're sitting with our backs to the Pacific, which is rolling out behind us in a still reasonably misty day down here by the sea. And uh, there's a big expanse of the famous Santa Monica Beach between us and the waves. But we've got our backs to it because we're looking at a tall building called the Georgian Hotel, which has recently been refurbished and, and reopened. It's been painted a, a really striking aquamarine blue with gold details on it. It's an Art Deco building, originally built in 1933. So this hotel would have been standing here when Chandler was living in Santa Monica, and we could imagine it being here when Marlowe was walking the streets. And I believe, Dick, this, this is quite a famous landmark in Santa Monica, isn't it? Oh, Characters yeah. Characters like Clark Gable, Charlie Chaplin, Marilyn Monroe, full drunk here. A lot of people, a lot of, lot of celebrities walked through that door over there, and God knows what went on in that hotel. <laughs> <laughs> well, the kind of climactic scene of Farewell, My Lovely starts with Marlowe lying on his back in a waterfront hotel. Now, the Georgian is a pretty smart place, so it almost certainly wasn't a place like this at Chandler had in mind. In the book, the hotel is a cheap, crummy hotel. Marlowe's lying on his back on a mattress, waiting for it to get dark. He's just staring at the ceiling. And it says, the reflection of a red neon light glared on the ceiling. When it made the whole room red, it would be dark enough to go out. And eventually it is dark enough, and Marlowe steps out onto the waterfront walk where we're sitting now. And Mm -hmm. and how would you describe this section, Dick? How would you describe the crowds that he steps into? Well, you know, it'll be the, the people wandering the beach at that time of night, which is not your ordinary tourists. It would be people who were going from bar to bar or to wherever they were headed. There's something almost a bit nightmarish about it, isn't there? Quite but a bit, yes. He says at one point that the sidewalk swarmed with fat stomachs. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, well, that's there's true. There's a bingo parlor going full blast, a hot dog merchant splitting the dust like an axe. A lot of the novel has been in these quite quiet, lonely, solitary settings, and this is suddenly a real kind of hubbub, and there's something almost hellish about it. It's not only just hellish, it's, it's also like uh, the kind of shouting and screaming that you usually hear at uh, beachfront areas that have lots of stuff going on inside the places, the, lots of drinks, lots of mm. women. His biographer, Tom Heine, um, talks about how 
Chandler disliked the way that Los Angeles changed while he was living here and heading towards what he saw as a mass-produced culture. He said at one point that Chandler said, but it was all leading, he reckoned, to a stakeless steak to be broiled on a heatless broiler in a non-existent oven and eaten by a toothless ghost. And I feel like you get a sense of that frustration in this description of these kind of, this oh, kind yeah. of commercial, senseless crowd. One of the most memorable scenes in Sleeping Dog is, is the moment at the dog fight, which is a key moment in the novel. And the crowd there is, it reminds me somewhat of that crowd. There's something hellish about that crowd as well, such a varied group of people. Oh, yeah, well, those are people watching a dog fight, which is, to me, one of the most uh, disgusting things that you can do. But the attraction reached out to all sorts of people. You know, there were gamblers, there were people from the lower echelons there were professors who would go in to see things like that. There was just something about the dogfight that drew these people. And you see them, they've got money in their hands, they've got uh, hot dogs in their hands. <laughs> They're just bending over watching the dogs. God. Well, the money that Chandler began to earn from his Marlowe novels and then, and then from his work in Hollywood allowed him and his wife Sissy to to move out of their Santa Monica apartment in, in 1940. And, and in 1946, they finally bought a house in La Jolla, which was a place that Sissy had always wanted to live. And although he'd officially left Hollywood, Chandler did agree to work on a screenplay for an unfilmed movie called Playback, yes. um, for which he was paid $140,000, which was un, you know, unbelievable at any time. It's, it's extraordinary. And he, of course, he later used that screenplay as a model for a Marlowe novel. And so how did, after he left Hollywood, how did the rest of Chandler's career pan out? What, what other novels did he work on? Well, The Long Goodbye was sort of in that period. That's right, 1953, uh, I think. Yeah. yeah, so he wrote his greatest novel after leaving Hollywood in La Jolla. His life in La Jolla is sort of interesting. There, there are a couple of mystery writers who lived in La Jolla and said that they would bump into him from time to time, but he was not the kind of guy that would uh, call you and say, hey, let's go get a drink, you know. He, he, they kept to themselves very much, he and Sissy. It sounds like when, you know, when he first started writing, they intentionally created this quite reclusive lifestyle and, it, and never really shook it. I think that's true. Uh, he was a very odd fellow actually Chandler was he was a germaphobe is that what the term mm -hmm. is yeah he would wear white gloves in public and I, presumably at home also he was just a rather strange chap <laughs> during this period in, in 1952 when his wife Sissy was 81 and in fact terminally ill they didn't tell everyone that they decided to travel to London because he wanted to show Sissy where he'd grown up and and, of course, at that stage, he was, uh, he was a celebrity when he arrived in yes. London. You know, the films had made him famous, but also, you know, given the, the hosts of this podcast, it was interesting that Penguin Books had made Chandler's name in Britain. You know, since 1948, they'd been bringing out a Marlowe novel every year. And when he landed in, in 1952 in the UK, the four books which had come out so far had sold 500,000 copies in the it's UK. Amazing. So he That's amazing. It's an amazing number. Yeah, he was a real celebrity. And then the following year, he wrote The Long Goodbye, as you say. And, and what is it 
do you think that makes that his masterpiece? Why do you think that's his greatest it, novel? It's just has it's it's much more nuanced. It's more uh, deliberate. He, he, Marlowe in that book is sort of like reaching the end of his line, and he knows it. He befriends Terry Lennox, which is something he doesn't do in any of the other books. I don't think he uh, has that kind of a friendship. Mm. And of course, what happens is that he feels betrayed and. But it's just a, a much deeper novel than, than all of the others. It's, it seems to be about something more than night, you know. It's something more than mystery, more than who killed whom. Mm. All of his books were, of course, but that one in particular was. And he gives himself a little, rather like uh, Hitchcock, he gives himself a little walk-on cameo in the person of Henry Clarendon IV, the yeah. alcoholic writer. But then the following year, in 1959, Chandler died. Well, we've talked here about the start of this denouement in Farewell, My Lovely, when Marlowe steps out of his waterfront hotel and heads towards the pier. So let's do the same. Let's walk towards the famous Santa Monica Pier and talk about what he goes to find. Sounds good. I'm afraid of death and despair, I said of dark water and drowned men's faces and skulls with empty eye sockets. I'm afraid of dying, of being nothing, of not finding a man named Brunette. He chuckled. You had me going for a minute. Yo, fellas! What time is so Dick and I have walked out to the end of Santa Monica Pier, which is over a hundred years old. There's been a pier here, and, and it's and it's for many decades been a, an amusement park, a, a site for carousels and, and entertainment. I'm looking over at a, at a big Ferris wheel, a, a roller coaster. Um, there are burger joints, there are magicians, bubble blowers. It's a real sort of carnival atmosphere on the pier and Chandler catches some of this atmosphere in Farewell My Lovely doesn't he? Yes he does he, when he's trying to find Moose Malloy and he hears that Moose Malloy is perhaps out on the water somewhere uh-huh. Well in one of these gambling ships which yeah. you know are the location for this great denouement for Farewell My Lovely now you know we're looking out now at the open Pacific there's a few powerboats out there I can see the sort of shadowy profile of some tankers on the horizon but at the time that Chandler was living in Santa Monica there were these established gambling ships weren't they how what were those well they could exist three miles I think three miles out which was in open water and so they were not under the control of Santa Monica and there were two or three major gambling ships that were all run by the same guy whose name escapes me right now. He was called Cornero, I think. Cornero, of course. And uh, he ran the ships for a long time. Rex, I think, was one of them. And eventually, of course, uh, he met up with uh, someone who wanted him to stop, and and, uh, there was a big uh, fight, and he lost. But doesn't seem to have been that badly defeated because Cornero went on to run a Las Vegas casino oh, yeah. and uh, well, sure. his kind of mobster connections kept him going. But, um, you know, it must have been so perfect for Chandler to see these, that's such a visible aspect of the corruption of this city that 
just outside the city jurisdiction, these big gambling ships and, and boats leaving the oh, pier sure. and, the, and the foreshore here, taking well-dressed gamblers out to these boats. You, you can imagine Chandler getting on one of the boats right. and, and coming out and thinking to himself, oh, I've got to put this in some book sometime. Yeah, definitely. And so, as you say, Marlowe is heading for one of these boats because he thinks Moose Malloy might be hanging out there. He has this great description of the gambling ship Montecito. Mm-hmm. He calls it a, a converted seagoing freighter with scummed and rusted plates. The superstructure cut down to the boat deck level, and above that, two stumpy masts just high enough for a radio antenna. There was a light on the Montecito also, and music floated across the wet, dark sea. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like throughout the book, he's, he's meeting these villains, these thugs, and, and he's kind of scaling the ladder of corruption in the city and you know he's we've met John Wax but on these boats he meets Laird Brunette doesn't yes, he? Yes of course and uh, Laird Brunette is the very smooth very cool gambler and uh, and, and mobster and, and oh and everything else yeah. yeah I mean just the bad guy right it's a good description of him where it says he, he was neither young nor old neither fat nor thin his forehead was narrow and brainy and his eyes held a delicate menace but there's this sense in the book that Marlowe's trying to kind of crack how this corruption works, like who's pulling the strings, you know, where it's all coming from. And you think when he finds Brunette, that's going to be the, you know, the uber villain. But actually, Brunette, someone says, he don't run the town. He couldn't be bothered. Yes, and It's exactly. like when you get to the very top, actually, you know, the corruption's so pervasive, it, you know, they, it can't be bothered to actually pull the strings. Yeah, why do that? He, you know, <laughs> he's got everything he wants. Why, why would he have to... Yeah control them. Yeah, yeah. And how does um, Marlowe actually get on board? He's, he's oh, he, helped he, by this memorable yeah, he, character, he, he right? he finds this, this uh, fellow who agrees to help him get on board the boat and takes him out to the boat, and they sort of sneak on, and uh, that's how Marlowe gets on this boat. Uh-huh. He's certainly not going out as a gambler. He's going out as a, you know, he, he's breaking into it. Uh-huh, they have to sneak under the, the searchlight and... But this character, he's called Red Norgard. Yes. And he's an ex-Base City cop. He's an interesting one, isn't he? Because when he's first described, um, Marlowe says, he had the eyes you never see, that you only read about. Violet eyes, almost purple. Eyes like a girl, a lovely girl. His skin was as soft as silk, lightly reddened, but it would never tan. It was too delicate. And later on, he dreams about Red and says he thinks he's the nicest man I ever met. It's kind of unexpected portrait of a kind of soft tough guy well yeah even more so i mean it, it's 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 almost homoerotic yeah. when you think about it yeah and and that's part of chandler's reputation too although I, who knows mm. who knows what the you know what the reality was yeah it's been said that Marlowe is a kind of product of a repressed homosexuality but yes. as you say it's hard to know but he's a fascinating character this red he's you know with his violet eyes and he certainly seems to haunt marlowe afterwards uh, oh very much so yeah well uh, but chandler you know that may just be chandler filling in a character you know mm. there's a way you you just introduce a character and let him go but chandler didn't do that he made sure that every character he used wound up being fully dimensional and that's mm-hmm. his way of uh, adding dimension to that character uh-huh. well it's a fantastic and very dramatic scene getting out onto the Pacific and breaking into this gambling ship and finally meeting the big mobster boss who's been oh, lurking yes. behind everything so let's head back off the pier now and talk about the very ending of the novel before we wrap up Sure. 
and suddenly the butler fainted, I said. Only it wasn't the butler who did the murder. He just fainted to be cute. I inhaled some of my drink. It's not that kind of story, I said. It's not lithe and clever. It's just dark and full of blood. So we've come off the pier now, and we're sitting by the beach. In fact, in front of the original location of Muscle Beach with uh, various training devices on the sand and, and people working out. And beyond them is the glistening Pacific Ocean. The sun has finally broken through the clouds and a great place to discuss the ending of Farewell, My Lovely. Now, at the end of a novel, after everything's been wrapped up, all the loose ends at Chandler have been dangling, they've all been tied together, Marlowe is chatting to Anne Reardon again. Mm -hmm. And uh, she says, uh, you ought to have given a dinner party you at the head of a long table telling all about it little by little with your charming light smile and a phony English accent. And he tells her, this isn't that kind of story. <laughs> and it seems like that's a bit of a mission statement that Chandler puts in the novel, isn't it? He, he was oh, yes. reacting against those Agatha Christie wrap-up Yeah, he novels. wasn't very happy about those. He didn't think those were real. <laughs> yeah, I think he talked once about how the hard-boiled crime novel has an honesty which other mystery writing didn't have. And Rather than the term "who done it," he preferred the term "what the hell happened." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quite a good description of uh, his novels. And later, in 1947, Chandler wrote to one of his friends, the librarian John Sando. He said, "I'm working on another Marlowe, because for business or professional reasons, I think the guy is too valuable to let die out." And Dick, as a final question, do you think Marlowe is still too valuable to let die out? Oh, well, I think uh, certainly his agent feels that he is because they keep bringing out Marlowe books. But, uh, yeah, I think he's too valuable to be one of the forgotten books. We don't want that to happen. And I don't think it will because Chandler's books, is just they'll always be there and they'll always be alive. Well, Dick, what a perfect place to wrap up this conversation about Farewell, My Lovely and Raymond Chandler. Thank you so much for joining us on, on the road. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Dick Lochter, Penguin Audio for the clips of Scott Brick reading from Farewell, My Lovely, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott. The producers were Megan Tan and Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with those famous lines from the end of The Big Sleep. What did it matter where you lay once you were dead? In a dirty sump or in a marble tower on top of a high hill? You were dead. You were sleeping the big sleep. You were not bothered by things like that. Oil and water were the same as wind and air to you. You just slept the big sleep, not caring about the nastiness of how you died or where you fell. Me, I was part of the nastiness now. <laughs> <laughs>